However, we are in part eight of our Revelation series, and I entitled today's message, Worship the King. For the next two weeks, we will be in the throne room of God, up in heaven. Uh, John is not the only one that had an opportunity to see this. We'll see many different prophets, whether it's Ezekiel or Isaiah, began to see things in heaven and be able to describe it to other people. Uh, we got a couple more Bibles that need it up here. They're grabbing them in the backs. So hang in one second. They'll bring them to you. Al's running back there too. But what I guess I want us to understand is that as we've been traveling through this series, we've taken eight weeks to do what John saw in, I don't know, about 20 minutes. Okay, we do that to slow it down to understand it. The original readers understood a lot more than we understand today. But what we must do this morning is, as we engage with the text, realize John received this in one big long swoop. We just got done with the letters to the churches. You remember all those? Hopefully you've gone back and studied those if you missed any of that. But now we go from the letters to the churches where everything seemed normal and organized. We can go through it and it sounds a lot like Paul writing one of his letters. Now we step into the bazaar. From here on out, we get into weird stuff. It's going to start out and ramp you up slowly because we're going to talk about some throne room stuff. We're going to talk about a little bit of things that you'd go, oh, that's God, that's comfortable. Then in chapter 6, it hits the fan. Everything goes bizarre. Everything starts getting a little bit crazy. And so we are now going to be walking on less sure footing. Uh, and I, I, I can speak maybe for myself. As a teacher, I get more and more nervous as we go on because there is so much that is not known exactly. I never want to mislead you. I never want to lead you astray in any way. And I appreciate all the feedback I get. Everyone seems to be enjoying the series. I hope that you're learning quite a bit. But understand, I don't know all this stuff. I don't know all the answers. Uh, it's okay with me. I know I, I don't want a God that I have all completely figured out. If I can get my arms around God, he's not big enough, yeah? All right, well, as we begin, let's begin with one simple concept lest we miss why I believe this chapter is here. So the fill in the blank in front of you is this. A clear view leads to accurate worship. A clear view leads to accurate worship. What you think about God, you've heard me say in the past as a quote, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because out of what you believe God to be will flow who you are. If you believe God to be removed, you will act a certain way. If you believe God to be involved, if you believe God to be personal, if you believe God to be transcendent, if you believe God to be other, all these things adjust who you are, what you believe, how you act, and the decisions you make. Our worship, however, is dramatically affected. By what type of God that we see here, we are about to launch into a time where God is going to pour out his wrath and wrap things up on the earth before he does that. He gives John a picture of who he is. He doesn't want John to see the activity being the only thing about him. It's almost as if God's going to say, listen, I'm about to do some stuff that's going to blow your mind. I have some things that I'm about to throw down on the earth that is going to scare the living daylights out of you. But I want you to remember something, John. I want you to remember who I am. 
you know me. I have not changed. I have not, I have not moved. I am the exact same God yesterday, today, and forever. What I do, I do in love, justice, and mercy. Now, so we start out and we say, are we seeing God rightly? When we come into worship, do we have the right heart intent? As we live our lives, and indeed, all of creation is worshiping God just by being what they were created to be. As a bird flies across the sky, that is an act of worship. Why? Because birds were built to fly. When a tree grows tall and strong, that is an act of worship because it was born to be big and strong. It's interesting because creatures do what they were built to do. Plants do what they were built to do. In fact, all of creation seems to have a pretty good grasp on worship, except us. We're the only ones that seem to fight against why you're here. We seem to wrestle with this idea. We were built to be salt and light in the earth, and we tend not to. We were built to worship our God, yet we tend to not. We were built to be other-centered, yet we seem to be dramatically selfish. It seems that we're the only ones wrestling with this idea of worship. Maybe that is because we do not see God as He is. So He breaks it out for John and says, John, you want to see who I am? Let me show you a little snippet of who I am. And He opens up the door of heaven. And John begins to see the most amazing things. So let's read through this chapter together, and then we will pray for the word. Then we'll go back and tear it apart and see what we have for this morning. So we are in Revelation chapter 4. Would you turn there with me? Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, page 869 in the Bibles that were handed to you. It's the last book in the Bible. It makes it a little bit easier to find. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. I'm just going to read through the chapter, and we can move on. It begins like this. John says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was... And is and is to come whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we engage with your word that is alive and active, Jesus, as we engage with you, would you open our eyes so we could understand it? That we would see you in a fresh new way. That, Lord, the revelation that you gave to us would be revealing today. That it would take the lid off so many things we wonder about. And that we would love you more and love people more just because we came. Father, we sit under your teaching now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you shut your Bibles... We have a phrase to the first two words. What did you see after this after what? Well, last week we just studied a letter to the church in Laodicea. We talked about the lukewarm thing. Remember, I almost forgot. All right, moving on. We just finished up these letters. And like I said, we've now taken eight weeks to get here. Yet for John, it was all one smooth flow. So he says, after this, after Jesus dictates seven letters to him, after John had already had his mind blown by seeing God, by being in the spirit, by seeing Christ move around amongst the lampstands, we've forgotten all that because that was eight weeks ago. So let's jump back. Go back to chapter one with me. Let's take a look at where John is coming from. He says, after this, after what? Well, before the letters, this is what he saw. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a what? Like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of what? Rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades Write Therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands are this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. After this, John said, because he then dictates seven letters. So right after John is caught up in the rapture of this whole idea, not the rapture, but the idea of being enraptured by this brand new vision, this amazing visual of Jesus Christ, that if indeed this is John the disciple, if this is John the apostle, then certainly this is Jesus' best friend. 
He doesn't even recognize him in such a glorified state. He's already seen him raised from the dead. He's already seen him in partial glorification. But now Jesus is adjusted again. He sees one like a son of man. You would think he would say, and there's my buddy Jesus. But no, he's now something other. He now sees this one walking amongst the lampstand, walking amongst the churches, being amongst his people, making decisions, changing the world. He said, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, one thing that we need to understand is that the way that it probably assumed or or felt like to John was that he was in a dream. But he was not in a dream, otherwise he would say he was in a dream. He said, I was caught up in the spirit. We don't know what that means. Many people would say it was much more like a trance-like state where you're still here on earth, but you feel like you're moving in a new realm. I want you to see all the words that are used spatially. For example, sometimes in a dream, when you're dreaming things, things just kind of slide in front of you. While I was walking here, then I was suddenly somewhere else. This he's engaging with spatially. When he hears something, he can hear it behind him. He has to turn around to go see where it came from. Then he has to go up to go somewhere. There's a whole realm he's operating in that God is moving him around. But it's all spatial. Now, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Does that mean his prior vision of seeing Jesus walking amongst the lampstands was on earth? It would seem so. Because now he's looking up, he sees a door open, he's about to go to a different location. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, who spoke to him like a trumpet? Now last time we said it was Jesus. We want to be consistent. However, didn't we just read a passage that says once we got to Jesus, he had a voice like the sound of rushing waters so there's some debate in commentaries whether it really doesn't matter but whether or not the trumpet voice was one of the voices of christ or whether or not it was an angel that was saying come up here i need to show you some stuff because angels are god's messengers so they're sharing his word anyway so it really doesn't matter but i just want us to be consistent last time we said that it was christ This time, let's go ahead and stick with it if we think it's Christ. Now, understand, just because it's red in your Bible does not mean that's inspired, right? Okay, it may or may not be Jesus talking. But we just need to know that God is trying to convey something to John. A door was standing open to heaven, and the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. There's two things that should have popped into your mind. The first one was the idea of come up here. The last time we heard that phrase was when God spoke to Moses and he was up on Mount Sinai. Do you remember? You're going to see a lot of that in this passage. And so we must be familiar. When Moses was going to receive the Ten Commandments, the law of God, he was called up onto the mountain. God does a lot on mountaintops. The Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of this, the Mount of that. And up on the mountaintop, on Mount Sinai, God descended down. There was smoke and thunder and lightning. Do you remember all that? It was so scary, everybody was afraid of even being around it. They put a perimeter around the mountain because God said, don't you dare let them touch the mountain. I'm here. They are unclean. They have no right to come onto my mountain. And so they were kept out. And he said, Moses, you come up here and I want to share something with you. Then I want you to go carry that message out to the people. 
Same exact concept. So that's the first thing we should think of. The second thing is that he said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In chapter one, he said, I'm going to show you what you've seen. I want you to write down what you've seen, what you will see and what will take place after this same phrase. So a lot of people read and say, now, whatever's going to happen after this, after the throne room scene is future. Well, it's future to John. Does that mean it's future to us? That is something that we're going to have to debate and discuss. Come up here and I will tell you what must take place after this at once. I was in the spirit and you're like, but you were already in the spirit. You just said that in chapter one. What are you like in a double spirit now? Where are you at? I think it just means I'm now in a new location in the spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven. I would suggest to you that the throne is one of the major central points in the whole book of Revelation. You say, why? Well, let's take some stats A throne is mentioned in every chapter of all 22 chapters of Revelation except three. It's in every chapter. Almost always it's referring to God's throne or sometimes it'll refer to the elders' thrones. But thrones are a big deal. In this chapter alone, thrones are mentioned 13 to 14 times depending on how you count. 46 times in the whole book. Some books and commentaries say from here on out, everything you see is from the perspective of the throne. Why is a throne so central to Revelation? Well, who is John writing to? Do you remember? To seven churches. What was happening to those churches? They were being persecuted. By who? By Rome. Someone sitting on a throne. Who's on the real throne? In other words, all their fear, all their anxiety, all their lives are being dictated by someone sitting on a throne. God rips open heaven and says, I'm on the throne. I don't care who's sitting down there. That means nothing to me. I'm the one moving and operating the world. I am your central focus. Remember, I sit on the throne. I dictate the future. That was to bring comfort and encouragement to a bunch of people that felt like, are we ever going to survive? God always says, remember where I sit. Remember who I am. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne with someone sitting on it. Someone. What do you mean someone? What, like Rick from down the street? Who, who's sitting on the throne? Well, now we can sit there and we can say, well, it's a triune God or... What's interesting is you're going to see that it's possible that in front of the throne, the Holy Spirit is represented, perhaps. We see that Jesus shows up in the next chapter as the Lamb approaching the throne. So that leaves one member of the Trinity to be sitting on the throne currently. And who is that? The Father. Has the Father ever been seen? In my opinion, the way I study Scripture, no. No. He dwells in unapproachable light. The Old Testament says, remember all the times in the Old Testament, they said no one can see God and live. That was the idea. You cannot see God in his totality or in his triune being without basically exploding. Right. You couldn't handle it. You can't handle seeing the father. He does not have the same form. I would suggest to you that every time you see God in any visible form, you're seeing the second person of the Trinity, which is Jesus. But yet here we have. Someone, he doesn't say something sitting on the throne, right? 
He said someone. There's a personality to it. There's a person sitting on the throne. He just doesn't want to get into it. Now, let me hit one thing. I was just looking over at Bud and we were talking about this before the service. Let me hit one thing that people really fixate on. And I think we're taking it out of context. Do you remember when it said, come up here? Do you remember that? There are many different translators or commentators, excuse me, that take that as a reference to the rapture. That from here on out, the church has been raptured and pulled up. When he says, come up here, it didn't mean just John. It means the whole church, come up here. Um, I think you're making way too much of it. That may be true. The rapture may be accurate. There may be a pre-tribulation rapture. I understand all that, but please don't argue it from here. It's just not supported. Because the idea of the parousia or the drawing up of Christ meets them as well. So I'm not seeing any of that here. So I know a lot of you may be reading through and going, aha, see the rapture. No, not yet. All right, let's not take that one yet. But a lot of people make a lot of that. But I wouldn't say so. We go back to the passage. Someone sitting on the throne. Someone is sitting there. It says the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. What in the world are those? Well, we have a lot of trouble with those because we're not familiar with either one of the stones very well. The Jasper that we have today is not the Jasper referred to in the Bible. The Jasper today, if you go Wikipedia it or try to track it down in the Encyclopedia Britannica, you're going to come up with some opaque stone of multiple colors. You're not going to quite figure out what it is. It's, kind, it's not even that attractive of a stone. When it's described in the Bible in the Old Testament, it refers much more to something that is translucent or clear, something much more like a diamond. So whatever their jasper was, it's not the jasper we're looking at. Carnelian is also known by two other names. Carnelian was also known as Sardian because it was a stone found near the city of Sardis, one of the letters that received a letter from Christ, one of the cities there. The third thing that people believe that it is, because it's a red stone, they believe that that is the modern-day ruby. Okay? So we have a blood-red stone. Is it really the ruby? I don't know. But we know it's a red stone. So what do we do with these two stones? We now have diamond. We now have ruby. Why are those significant? Well, we only know of their reference in three places in Scripture. The first place that, that they're mentioned, or one of the places, is they are actually on the breastplate of the king of Tyre. Now, what's so weird about that? is that when you read the, the passage about the king of Tyre and Ezekiel, most people don't think it's referring to a king at all. They believe that it's referring to Lucifer. Okay, which is weird, because now Lucifer has the stones before he became Satan. The second time you see it is it's the first and last stone on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. The third time you see it is, is later on in Revelation, it's two of the stones that are the foundations of the holy city. Now, do they have significance? What is the significance of their coloring? I have absolutely no idea, and no one seems to know. What we do know is there is a preciousness about it. Now we see God in dazzling light. They, he does not see a form. If he does, he does not comment on it. Why? Why doesn't John comment? Now, either he didn't see it, or he doesn't want to talk about it. Why wouldn't he want to talk about it? 
give you a suggestion. In the Ten Commandments, there's a commandment that says, make no graven image. Why? Because anytime you say it looks like this, you've limited God. Because people immediately shut down. They go, oh, I've seen that. That's all that God is. You go, no, he's not. He's more than that. It only looks like this. In order to stop people from shrinking God down and limiting God, God will not give them a visible representation. He's keeping that other and saying, as far as you know, I'm light and you don't even know how to contain light. So you know what? We're moving on. He's that other than we are. All right, we move on. With someone sitting on it, the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. You go, well, it's not a rainbow if it's all green, right? Okay. The way it seems to be written is that there's a rainbow and then a hue around it is green. There's a couple significant things about a rainbow. Where's the first place we see rainbow in the Bible? Noah and the flood. Do you remember that story? What was the point of the rainbow? It was a promise. The promise was what? I will no longer destroy the world with a flood. Next time I'll do it by fire. But anyway, that's not important. (laughs) I will not destroy it by a flood. The idea of the rainbow was that in the midst of my judgment, there is mercy. You understand? That's the power of the Noahic covenant. What is God about to reveal to John? I'm going to destroy the world. But what must you remember? I'm a God of mercy. Hovering around his throne is the symbol of mercy in judgment. Now, what's interesting is one commentator said the way that he reads it, and I don't know if this is accurate, but the way he reads it is that the rainbow, the arc of the rainbow or the full circle of the rainbow is actually vertical. So you would see it almost like a halo around it as opposed to horizontal, which is flat. So we can see this aura around God. Now, is this what God looks like? Well, I want you to do something. Keep your finger there in that passage and jump backwards to the left. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's right before the book of Daniel. So if you hit either one of those, you're going to be close. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 25. Page 587 in the Bible's handed to you. 587. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 25. What did Ezekiel see? Ezekiel's an Old Testament prophet, and he got to see all the weirdest stuff. All right. When you read through that book, don't read it right before bedtime. Okay, it's just really unusual. All right. Ezekiel happened to see the throne room as well. How did he describe it and how is it similar to John's view? Well, here we go. Ezekiel 125, page 587. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. And I'll tell you who they are here in a moment. As they stood with lowered wings above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Ah, now we have a visual. Now we begin to see what, in my opinion, is the second person of the Trinity before the the manger. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. Wait a second. When Jesus was walking among the lampstands, what did his legs look like? Burnished bronze refined in the fire, glowing with fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and a brilliant light surrounded him. All right. 
like the appearance of a what? A rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. And so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Is this the same throne room? Indeed. Now we have two guys referring to what they saw. And they just keep going. It was kind of like this. It was kind of like that. I've never seen anything like it. I don't know how to describe it to you. I don't know how to contain it in words. So I'm just telling you, it blew my mind. He shares this. We jump. Keep your finger there because we're going to go back to Ezekiel in a moment. Keep your finger there and go back to Revelation. Now we have the throne established. We have God on the throne. But now we have his holy court. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders who in the world are these guys where do these guys come from guess what i have options for you right now i'm going to contain the options to seven when i did my study i came up with 18 so i don't think you care i don't think you want to know 18 so i'm going to give you seven i'll put them in categories the first guess who are these guys they're surrounding the throne they have 24 thrones 24 seems to be a significant number because it's two times 12 we know 12 is a very significant number so there's a bunch of things about the number so who are these men now it says this Surrounding the throne were, were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So who are they? First guess. And a lot of these come from the ancient church, meaning all along. People have been guessing since this book was first written. The first guess on a lot of this stuff was by Irenaeus in 170 A.D. So if you think about Jesus dying around 32 A.D., it wasn't that much longer until people started guessing. All right, so I'm going to pull a lot of these from church history. The first one, they're heavenly priests. Yo, heavenly priests, that's weird. They just called them elders. Why didn't they just call them priests? Why would they guess priests? Well, here's an interesting fact. In Israel, when they moved around, they had priests and they had priestly helpers. The priestly helpers were called Levites. Do you remember? There were so many of them, they couldn't organize them all to work at the temple at the same time, so they went in shifts. They went in segments. Guess how many were in each segment? 24. So the immediate response would be once there's 24 set up, the Old Testament Jews would go, oh, they're priests. They're Levites. That's obvious. We always broke them into 24s. So if we have 24 guys, they've got to be Levites. So the first guess is that they're heavenly priests that minister before God. Second guess, they are the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs representing the 12 tribes of Israel. How many have been taught that that is what this means? Anybody raise your hand. All right, not very many of you. Now, here's the thing. That is probably the most common modern view, in my opinion. Here's why. Why in the world were there 12 tribes in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden Jesus selects out 12 men to track with him? Right? You start going 12, 12, Old Testament, New Testament. That's weird. Now we have... Jesus promising the disciples that they would have thrones with him. Do you remember when James and John's mom came up to Jesus and she said, hey, I know they're going to get these thrones. I just wanted to know, can my boy sit on either side of you? And he said, hey, hold on a second, aunt, right? Because it was his aunt, right? Hold on a second. No, 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 no. That's not for me to decide. They're going to be up there with me, but I can't tell you where they're going to sit. 
Now, if they're up there, who are the other 12? Well, 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament was very significant. So we have representatives of each of the tribes of Israel. In my opinion, that's the most likely answer to who these guys are. There is one key problem with it, in my opinion. Who's getting the vision? John. Shouldn't there be an empty seat? Shouldn't he have went, what's up, Peter? Right? Shouldn't there have been some representation of, and then I saw my other 11 buddies. Shouldn't there be this whole idea of going, hey, wait a second, who's that guy in my seat? Get him out of here. And he's like, I'm Bob, I'm a placeholder, you know, and who are these guys sitting on the throne? So we do have a bit of a familiarity problem that John would have at least recognized everybody and seen and mentioned that one of the seats was empty because it was his. So they have to be representations of something. All right. So third guess, they're the faithful believers of all time, Old Testament, New Testament, Jew and Gentile. New Testament, Old Testament kind of combo thing there. All right. Basically, it takes the Old Testament tribes and doubles them for the Gentiles. So you got 12 Jew, 12 Gentile. Is that it? Uh, the fourth one, it's just the New Testament church. It's no Jews. And you go, well, who came up with that idea? That's actually John MacArthur's primary view. Okay. And what his view is, is that as you're tracking through, if you take it semi-chronological, the Jews are still being dealt with. They get glorified later. They get a chance to be brought up later. They're still in the process of being sanctified. So when John sees them initially, it should be just the church. Now, here's my problem with his view, and he's more intelligent than I am. Please, let's be very clear on that. However, I think that when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature, time doesn't matter as much. So quite frankly, when he sees something, it's making a big picture regardless of when it happened. Okay, so I don't think that that's necessarily a great argument, although he may be very right. The fifth option is this. Are they merely a council of God? They're the council. They're the elders. Why would we say that? Because in Psalms and a bunch of Old Testament passages, it says God sits amongst his elders in heaven. Now, my problem with that view is what? God doesn't need counsel. Okay, so it just seems odd and awkward. Uh, Number six, they're angels. 24 angels. That was the majority view in the early church, that they were 24 angels. What's the problem with that view? Well, here we go. Angels aren't numbered. Angels don't receive rewards. Angels are distinguished from the elders. Angels don't wear crowns. Angels claim, don't, can't claim to be redeemed. And it says these are elders, meaning maturity, and angels are timeless. Are they angels? Probably not. Last possibility, number seven. They are representative of concepts. They are not real existing beings. They're not real people. They're merely a picture of something. These are the guesses throughout history. They represent the Old and New Testaments, represent the great and minor prophets. They represent the elders of the Jerusalem church. They represent the ascension of the Gentiles. Okay, I'm not buying any of those, right? I would suggest to you that whatever it means, it's going to include the Jews in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, at least in symbolism. All right, we got it? 24 elders. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. That means they have the heavenly garb. They were purified. They were redeemed. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. What are they doing with crowns? 
What are they doing on thrones? Isn't God the only one worthy to sit on the throne? What are they doing on thrones? The idea is that Jesus said to his disciples, you will reign with me. And he said to those that overcome, do you remember all the letters we just studied? At the end, he would always say, and if you overcome, I will give you this. I will dress you in white. I will put a crown on your head. I will do this. I will do that. This is what they would look like. But let's be very clear on what's on their heads. There are two words that are commonly used for crown. Diadema, Stephanos. Diadema is the crown of a ruler. That is not this word. Stephanos is the wreath of a victor. So the little uh, flower, uh, um, not flower, uh, leaf wreath. I don't, know, I don't know how to say that. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's an interwoven wreath that's put on the head of somebody that runs a race or does great in the games. They put it on. Well, these are gold. So they got the gold victor's crown saying, well done, you have overcome. What are they going to do with that? We'll find out here in a moment. From the throne came, just like in Mount Sinai, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, or sevenfold spirit of God. I really want that to be the Holy Spirit. Okay, is it? I don't know. We argued that in a few messages ago. I have a hard time with it due to one verse. But is it the Holy Spirit? Perhaps. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. What's that? Well, we have a couple choices, right? The first thing that you have to look at is that in Revelation, it says there is no sea in heaven. Now, why? Well, we can get into that when we start seeing all these beasts rise up out of the sea later on. I'll tell you why there is no sea. But we know there's no sea. It's not a sea. It looks like a sea of what? Of glass. Meaning it's clear, it's transparent, it's shiny. So now we have before God this shiny expanse that goes out. What could that be? Well, here's kind of a weird thing. In the ancient Jewish world, they had a view that, remember in creation it says God made, separated the firmaments? The waters from above, from the waters below. Do you remember that in the book of Genesis? Which we always think of as our atmosphere and then our cloud layer, right? So we have this whole idea of firmament above and below. The Jews took it a step further. They believed, remember, they believed in a flat world. So they're on a flat world. They have heaven up. So heaven is up. When you look up, there's an expanse and the water or shininess was actually crystal ice and it was the floor of the throne room of god they literally believed that when you looked up if you went far enough there was the throne room floor of god now here's a weird addition to it why would they view it that way to show you how strong it was i came across an unusual reference in one of my studies in the quran what's the quran the islamic holy book in the quran in one of the surahs there which is their chapters There's a story of when Solomon, King Solomon, met with the Queen of Sheba, which is referred to in the Bible. It goes on and tells you about it. It says that when Queen Sheba walked into King Solomon's throne room in his mighty temple, she saw an expanse like a sea of water, and she lifted her skirt so she wouldn't get her feet wet. Now, it was just a floor, but it looked like water. 
Okay, now, the reason I cite that is because it's believed that Solomon's throne room was built on this idea that before the throne would be an expanse of water that would look like a sea. Okay, so our first guess is that you have the throne room floor that was super shiny and looked like water. Okay, the second one is that when you go to the holy place of God, it looks a lot like the temple down here. It has a throne, it, uh, um, it has... Um, the altar of incense, the altar of fire. It has a bunch of different things that had it in the earthly temple. One of the things that's not represented is the washing basin. The washing basin was a big deal. Anytime you tried to go in and offer sacrifice in the Old Testament, you had to wash your hands in a special ceremonial way. That doesn't show up in heaven. Why? Because those that go in heaven have already been cleaned. However, they called that washing place the sea. So isn't it interesting that now you have up in heaven a whole floor representing as you walk into the throne, you've already been cleansed. You've already been washed. You've already been set free. Is that what it means? One other statement is that what else glimmers like glass but ice? When one of the Old Testament prophets, we'll read here in a moment, saw heaven, he saw what was like shimmering ice. All right. All these different guesses to try to figure out what it was. Do we care? Not really. All right, moving on. Turn with me back to Exodus, uh, excuse me, Exodus, to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Because we're about to learn about some unusual critters. All right? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. Let's set up our next part in Revelation. Here we go. Ezekiel says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was like that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. How many faces? Four. How many wings? Four. All right. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed with burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides, they had like the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man and on the right side had the face of a lion and on the left the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. And then it just gets weirder. Let's go down to verse 22. Because they have a bunch of wheels that hang out with them too. It's very unusual. Verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like what? Like ice. Now we're back to that glass reference. And each had, uh, excuse me, an awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out toward one another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty. 
like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Pretty weird, huh? Bizarre. How many wings? Four. How many, how many faces? Four. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, page 487. Isaiah chapter 6, page 487. Ezekiel didn't just see the throne room. Isaiah saw it too. What did Isaiah see? More weird stuff. Isaiah chapter 6, page 487. We there? All right. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. Now, let's pause. Ezekiel saw cherubs. Isaiah saw seraphs. Do you all realize that cherubim is the plural of cherub? Cherubim means more than one cherub. Seraphim means more than one seraph. Okay? Because we kind of go, well, which is it? Is it cherub or cherubim? Same exact thing. It's just plural and singular. Above him were seraphs, each with how many wings? Six. How many did the cherubs have? Four. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. All right. John's readers knew those stories. Dive back to Revelation. And let's see what John saw. Cherubim have four wings and four faces. Seraphs have six wings, right? Maybe. Let's take a look at what John saw. Revelation 4, verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. Oh, there they are again. When Ezekiel saw the cherub, there were four of them. There were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. Doesn't say anything about having multiple faces. One whole creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox, same animals. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had how many wings? Six. Six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. So what are these? They're a hybrid. <laughs> right? God made them more fuel efficient. That's what's so fantastic, right? Okay. They're a combo. What in the world are these creatures? Are they beings? Are they just representations? Do they just mean something, but they don't actually exist? Well, if that is the case, then why are they so central 
in biblical theology. You go, what do you mean? Do you understand in the Old Testament, cherubs are all over the place? In the temple, when you would walk into the temple, the, pre, the high priest one time a year could go into the Holy of Holies. In order to get there, you had to walk through a curtain. What was embroidered on the curtain? Cherubim. When you walked into the Holy of Holies, there was a golden box. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. On the top lid was two cherubim extending their wings out to touch one another. In between that place was called the mercy seat, which is where the presence of God remained. If they're not real beings, why are they always pictured in a similar fashion and show up everywhere? If so, do they always look like this? We now at least have different groups of beings. One are called seraphs, one are called cherubs. But now we have this hybrid living creature here. What is that? Well, we don't know. Why are they looking the way they're looking? Why do they have what different things? What does a lion represent? What does an ox represent? What about a man? What about an eagle? Why those four? Well, there's some guesses. The first one is that was the order in which God, not order, but that was the groupings in which God created in Genesis. He made the beasts that crawl on the earth. He made the beasts of the field. He made man. He made the birds of the air. So you have all four segments of creation shown up. But why those four? Well, you now have the lion who was the king of all beasts. Yeah, that's why Jesus was called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, when we look at this, we start realizing we have the noblest in the lion, the strongest in the ox, the swiftest in the eagle, uh, excuse me, the wisest uh, in man, the strongest in the ox, and the swiftest is the eagle. So you have the best of all of creation. Every segment of creation, you pick the highest. They are represented. Why? Are they attributes of God? What are they? Are they just merely four ways to look at creation? What's interesting is back in 170 AD, one of the first things Irenaeus wrote about was these creatures. He said, they're the four gospels. You're like, what? What are you talking about? And then everybody went off on it. St. Augustine, he wrote about it. What did he say? He said, yep, they're the four gospels. Matthew talks about Jesus being king. That's a lion. Mark talks about his human side. Luke, it talks about Jesus' sacrifice as the oxen. And John has an eagle's eye view of the top. Is that what it means? Is this not bizarre? Everything just keeps spinning. Who are these beings? What are they doing? In general, here's what we know from the Old Testament. Whenever the seraphs are referred to, they're referring to worship. They seem to be worship beings. I believe they're literal beings. I believe their image morphs to share something different with who's looking at them. I think it's a representation of trying to tell them something. But I do believe they're literal beings. Seraphs are the ones that were able to fly and get the tongue off the altar and touch the lips of Isaiah. They seem to be in worship. What do cherubim do? Cherub actually also is the word for curtain. They shield. They tend to be around the throne, hovering around the throne, shielding and defending almost like the bodyguards of God. They are very significant. 
What is interesting is it's believed by a lot of people, not everyone, but it's believed by a lot of people that Lucifer was what? A cherub. Makes the whole thing a lot more interesting. We move on to the last place as we close out. Turn back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. We close out. Guess what? I went long today. All right, here we go. Day and night, these creatures never stop saying what? Holy, holy, holy. Why three times? Trinity? Perhaps. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the supreme ruler who, will, who was and is and is to come. That is the name Yahweh. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne. Anybody heard of the band Casting Crowns? Where do you think they got it from? Right here. You take off the reward that you were given and say, truly, you are the only one worthy of honor. And you throw it before the king. Is that what we're doing with all the adoration we get from man? Are we casting it before the throne? Or are we hanging on to it with all our might? They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God. Kurios and Theos. Why is that important? Who was persecuting the Christians? Rome. Who was sitting on the throne persecuting? Domitian. What was Domitian's official title? Lord and God. That's what he called himself. John says, "Uh uh-uh. In heaven, they're worshiping the only Lord and God. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. Why do we see this throne room? What does it mean to us? It means that God is so far beyond and that He is worthy of our praise and worship regardless of our circumstance. When will we mature to the place where we can worship for His sake and not our own? When will we be able to walk into church, live our lives as if it's all about Him and not about us? I hope someday that will come. I hope someday I will grow up because I'm not there yet. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, You are worthy of all praise. You are worthy to be glorified, to receive all honor. Right now, Lord, as in our hearts, as we leave this building, as we sing praise to your name as we close, we want to lift you up and magnify you. We want to live our lives out here in the world doing what we were built to do, and that is to be your extension here on earth. Father, may we be conduits of your love, your mercy, and your peace. Make us the salt and light of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.